If you will turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 17. Many of these verses will sound very familiar to you. I have entitled uh, the message from the text, How Long, O Lord? Revelation 6, 9 through 17. Hear now the word of God. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we read a passage like this with such cataclysmic language. But yet we know that even though it seems difficult to understand, it is the revelation It is a revealing of things that you would have us know. So we do pray, Father, this morning as we gather and we seek out your word, you by your spirit, the same spirit who inspired these words would give us understanding of them, that we might know your mind, your thoughts, and your call in our lives. So we do pray, Father, that in all of this, your name would be uplifted and your people would be edified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the risk of sounding chippy, I have been known to, I will from time to time when I'm in a class or on a tour, where the teacher or the guide are using the terms CE and BCE instead of BC and AD. You know, the A, you know, BC before Christ, AD, Anno Domini, or the year of the Lord. They've kind of, you know, they're, they're trying to secularize that. And so now it's the common era, uh, before the common era. That, that is something, you know, you hear now when you take the tours. I will, again, and I try not to be a troublemaker to the best of my ability, raise my hand and ask the teacher, did something happen that was significant that, that separated these two eras? Well. We can, we can go ahead and use new terms to de-emphasize it, to kind of secularize it, but we all know this, that the entire earth, throughout the entire course of the last two millennia, 
has determined the very date of humanity based upon the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. We all know that to be the case. And it should, I think we've taken it for granted, it should astonish us that, as I think it's very poetically been put, that this transition of the ages has been based upon one solitary life. You've perhaps heard this poem, the solitary life poem. We have the the life of one person, one Middle Eastern man who was born in obscurity to relatively poor parents who never actually wrote a book, never held an office, never went to college, never led an army or did any of the things that we would normally associate with greatness. If it wasn't Alexander the Great who conquered 11 time zones, he never traveled more than a couple of hundred miles from where he was born. In his early 30s, he was abandoned by his best friends. He went through the kangaroo court of a trial. He was executed and he was buried in a borrowed grave. Yet, he, I don't care what People magazine talks about in terms of the most influential people in history, you know, he's number nine or something, you know. He has become the central figure of all humanity. No individual, no nation, no army, no generation has had the effect upon humanity that we see coming from Jesus of Nazareth. Wherever one travels in the world, the very date universally used is based upon how he changed the course of humanity. And the world, as I said a minute ago, has generally referred to that as B.C. and A.D. But those who know Christ and those who have dug into his word recognize those aren't really the terms. Those who know the word of God recognize the transition is really from Old Covenant to New Covenant. That's what really happened. The Old Covenant transitioned into the New Covenant. Now, why am I opening with this as we examine, you know, the fifth and sixth seals? I open with that because I fear that we have underestimated the explosive and cataclysmic nature of the changing of the ages. All the world has come to recognize that a change occurred. Yet I have to say, and I don't want to sound overly critical, modern eschatological prognosticators, you know, people who really focus on the end times and make movies about the end times and write books about the end times, almost with sleight of hand, and I'm not saying they're doing this intentionally, but almost with sleight of hand, have us looking forward in anticipation of what Christ will do rather than back at what Christ has done. I think that's a real problem. I think the idea that I'm looking forward to what Christ is going to do rather than rejoicing in what he has done is a problem. The words in the institution of the Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted when his earthly ministry was coming to an end were the words, remember, remember. 
we are to look back at what he has done. That's what he wants us to do. Now, don't get me wrong. No doubt the second coming, judgment day, the final resurrection are highly significant events which you and I have hope in. But the only reason we have hope in the second coming and the final resurrection and judgment day is because of what Jesus has already done. Those days are good days because of what has already happened. I have to say, we do have this idea that Jesus is going to come again and sort all things out. But Hebrews 9.28 says, He will not come again to contend with sin. When Jesus comes again, He's not going to deal with sin other than judge it. It's judgment day. It's not Him coming to sort things out, which is so popular today in our thinking. And because of this, we've become like spoiled children raised in a nice, paid-off house, paid off by our parents, Yet we are lamenting because the house needs some repairs. The house isn't the house that it once was in the 50s. And so what do we, how do we approach this? Do we go, well, I've been, I've, been, I've been called to work on the house. That's the calling. It's paid off, and I've been called to go to work. No, no. What has kind of taken control eschatologically in terms of end times is we're waiting for mom and dad to come back and somehow pay the house off again. We're waiting for mom and dad to come and do things lay left unfinished when they bequeath the house to us. We think Jesus has more work to do. There's things that he's left unfinished. And boy, I can't wait until he comes and takes care of business. Now, if I'm going to push this metaphor a little further... What we learn in the opening of these two seals, and it's really all the seals, is that the paid-off house, if you're following my metaphor, which is the kingdom of God, was established, but in a bad neighborhood. Certainly, this bad neighborhood during the time of Christ was the whole world. But what we see in Revelation, very specifically, the focus is upon Jerusalem as religious oppressors attacking the church and Rome as a political persecutor attacking the church. That's the neighborhood in which the kingdom of God was established. The breaking of these seals, I would argue, is Jesus dealing with the bad neighborhood. Now, okay, I'm going to go even further here. I'm going to push the metaphor a little deeper, just for the sake of clarity. In the Old Covenant, God revealed revealed himself how? Through one nation, Israel. You had one nation, Israel. The entire world was in darkness. God was revealing himself through Israel. But in the New Covenant we see God revealing himself in all nations. I've quoted, I quoted the Great Commission, right? Go into all nations now. Not just one nation, but all nations. There is a, the dip, one of the big differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the universality of it. 
every nation and people and kindred and tongue. I compare this to a firework. Fourth of July, you've got a dark sky, and you go and you set your chairs up to watch the fireworks, right? And in that dark sky, you see this little light, this little stream of light go up. That's the Old Covenant. And that little stream of light is Israel. Well, what happens at the New Covenant? The New Covenant is when the explosion happens and the light begins to cover the entire sky. It was always promised in the Old Covenant. It happened at the beginning of the New Covenant. Explosion, I would argue, is a very appropriate word to describe it. An explosion happens from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And I think what we're reading here is what that explosion actually looks like. Let us read again verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. A really interesting seal. You know, the seal is about its prayer. The seal is open and we're exposed to a prayer. Well, it shouldn't be a mystery to any of us that for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the first century, being a Christian was very severe. The persecution was very, very harsh. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says, we're being killed all day long. We're like sheep led to the slaughter. To be a Christian in first century Rome, first century Palestine, was very easily a death sentence. Jesus was born into a very hostile environment. And not only was he born into a hostile environment, he promised that those who followed him would experience the same hostility that he experienced. What we see in this passage are those who were slain for their faith calling for justice. They are under the altar, which probably depicts the fact that they had their own blood shed for the faith. Oftentimes in the Bible, we see that picture of us, those who follow Jesus, themselves being a sacrifice. Not an atoning sacrifice, but you understand that, you know, Paul, when he was going to die, he said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm going to be a drink offering. That didn't mean he was dying for somebody else. It just meant, I'm going to sacrifice, I'm going to die for my faith. So we see that is those, those people, probably somebody like we read earlier about Antipas. Remember Antipas who was a martyr in the first century? We saw in, in uh, Revelation chapter 2. And they had been slain. Why? They had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Which I, I stopped there for a second and thought, okay, why is it phrased that way? I think it's phrased that way because the word of God wasn't just something they held at a distance. It wasn't as if the Word of God was in the library and they were going, you ought to go read it, right? It was the Word of God and the fact that they wouldn't stop talking about it. It was the testimony they continually gave about the Word of God 
that caused them to be met with this kind of severe persecution which cost them their lives. Well, they're crying that God would avenge their blood. And I know that that sounds like kind of rough language, right? We should not view this, by the way, as some kind of evil, malevolent, vindictive, or spiteful spirit on their part. You know, we're not to have that type of retaliatory disposition. They are calling for justice. Somehow, and I can speculate as to why, somehow it has crept into Christian thinking that it is very Christian to allow evil to go unchecked. I think some of this comes from a misunderstanding of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, turn the other cheek, or if somebody, you know, give away your cloak or go the extra mile. I think it's a misunderstanding of what the point that Jesus was trying to make in the Sermon on the Mount as if, as Christians, that we should somehow ignore or endorse, you know, assault or theft which is what's happening right there. Somebody's slapping you, that's assault. It's not Christian to go, assault should be legal. It's not Christian to go, theft should be legal. Jesus is teaching something there that I think people misunderstand in terms of tolerating evil. I think what we have to see here is that these saints are praying for the victims of oppression that God would avenge them. They are praying for God's justice. I I feel like we've become uncomfortable with that. We love to say God is love. And the Bible clearly says that. But you know what it also says? God is just. And that justice must be pursued. Now, sometimes God avenges through civil authorities. You know the passage in Romans 12 and 13 where it says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You know what the context there is? The context are civil magistrates. It's God saying that I will avenge through authority figures, mayors, governors, police, and what have you. Which, by the way, makes the indictment against them so much worse because they, they have a job. They are to be ministers for God, and when they don't do it, uh, God will handle them because of the authority is given to them. So sometimes God exacts his justice through civil magistrates. Sometimes as we read the Bible, God will exact his justice through cosmic disturbances, right? Like Sodom and Gomorrah, or locusts, you know, with, uh, during the time of Joel. Sometimes it happens that way. Sometimes, and probably more times than anything, and this will be important when we get there, God will exact his justice on one nation through another nation, even an evil nation. Well, these saints under the altar are, their their contribution at this point, which is all they really probably could do, given this vision, their contribution is prayer. They are praying, God, how long? How long will you allow this to happen? How long will you allow this evil to take place? How long before you avenge those who are on the earth? Of this prayer, David Clark said this. It would seem to them, talking about those under the altar praying, and naturally that truth was being destroyed 
the church killed, and everything that was just and right was being outraged, and the people of God suffering as if God had forgotten. So they pray, how long, O Lord, how long? By the way, this is a very common prayer in Scripture. We read it in the Psalms. When, when you get, you know, the Psalms are written by a human being, experience human life, who feels like, where are you, God, and how long before you do something? And then, if you keep reading the Psalm, the answer is generally given. But the point here is, when horrible things are happening, we should work and pray that these things would be stopped. Now, to be sure, there are limits regarding what we can and should do. Like I said, we shouldn't be retaliatory. We shouldn't be malicious. We shouldn't be malevolent. But we should not be idle either. The alternative is not to do nothing. I mean, we, you know, search me, O law. You know, that imprecatory Psalm 139 where David is saying, do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? I hate them with the utmost hatred. Is followed by, search me, Lord, and know my thoughts. It's almost like, check me here and make sure that I haven't gone over the edge in terms of having the wrong disposition. Yet at the same time, we shouldn't do nothing and just let evil have its way. These saints are praying. Now, these martyred saints are given kind of good news and bad news. The good news revolves around a white robe that they are given. We see this quite often in Revelation. A white robe would be a sign of their justification before God. The white robe would be a reminder to them that they have peace with God through the blood of Christ. And let me just stop there because, you know, you get into the Revelation and there's always this temptation to just become sensational. We should ever read Revelation with our eyes on this central feature that apart from the blood of Christ... There is no victory in heaven or on the earth. So there's always the white robe, right? There's always Revelation chapter 5, for you have purchased with your blood. That can't somehow fall into the shadows. That must be ever on our minds and hearts as we study the Revelation. At the same time, recognize this, as Paul indicated in Acts 14, after being stoned and dragged and then keep, kept preaching, right? That it is through great tribulation that we enter into the kingdom of God. That is something we need to be willing to endure. We learn in the second half of verse 11 that the severe tribulation surrounding these first century Christians would continue for a while. It's not as if the answer is, I'm going to stop it right now. He's, he's basically saying, you guys need to rest. And by the way, we kind of look at that word rest, and if we dig into it a little bit, we recognize that he's telling them to have a disposition of contentment in the providence of God, because God has his own timing in terms of when he will do whatever he's going to do. And I will tell you this, that if you as a Christian are covered in the garments of Christ, which you have by grace through faith in him, that same rest and that same contentment belongs to you. And God may be just saying, you need to rest for a while. Be still. Know that I am God, and I'll take care of things when I've determined it's the right time to take care of things. 
Moving on to the sixth seal, verses 9 through 17. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun and the moon became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? All right, here we have it, this gigantic passage. Inevitably, inevitably, when trying to explain how the vast majority of the revelation is addressing the conflicts of the first century church, I will hear a collective, when did this happen in regard to this passage? It's understandable, right? I mean, people think this has to be the end of the world. Look at this. It's the end of the world. The sun becomes black. The moon becomes like blood. Stars are falling to the earth. That is simply, that has simply not yet happened. So people suggest. Therefore, it must be the future. I've heard that, I can't tell you how many times. My, my premillennial, and I, again, I, I promise some of you I'll get these terms all written out so you know what we're talking about. But people who think this is our future, my premillennial futurist brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, if you study this, and I have their books and I read them, they are quick to the newspapers. They are quick to the intelligence reports when it comes to these passage, passages. This, and this is the popular view, they suggest, is a first century man seeing a vision and trying to explain a nuclear bomb or a cobalt bomb or a fractional orbital bomb. And in the future, the big locusts will be Apache helicopters because that's the only way he could understand it. Because you get the newspaper out, and you look what's going on, then you look at this passage, and you're like, okay, that looks like, that looks like a nuclear, you know, nuclear winter, and so forth. But let me just tell you, because you're, you're wondering, why do we have such different views? And I'm going to tell you one of the reasons is because instead of being quick to the newspapers, what we need to do is be quick to the Old Testament. Because the Revelation has over 400 allusions to the Old Testament. In order to understand Revelation, we have to look at the Old Testament to understand this language. Just so you understand, what we're reading here is very familiar apocalyptic imagery. Now, let me just say this, because I, when, I, when I've taught this, I've had people with genuine interest, I'm not questioning their interest, come up to me and they'll go, so Pastor Paul, do you not believe in the second coming? Do you not believe in Judgment Day? Do you not believe in the final resurrection? I believe in all of that. 
I just don't think this passage is talking about it. I do believe that there will be a full consummation of a new heavens and a new earth. I also believe that when we read of a passage that is so cataclysmic like this, that is clearly a judgment, it teaches us, this, this near judgment teaches us about the remote judgment. It's the same God who will judge at the end of history who's administering this judgment so I can learn about that God and how he judges. But that's not, if we are studying our scriptures by reading the scriptures, what this passage is teaching. Now, I'm going to have to drag you into the classroom a little bit here, all right? Because I'm very nervous that you're thinking that I'm coming up with something wild. And I'm telling you, if you just study this, you'll be like, aha! I'm hoping for aha moments. I mean, if this is the end of the world, by the way, how could hiding in the mountains help? Right? You're like, I'm hiding. You know, I guess you can go with that, right? Adam thought he was hiding, going to hide from God. I guess that could happen. But generally speaking, let's look at these. What does the Old Testament teach us regarding, and these are things we see here, earthquakes, a blackened sun, the moon becoming like blood, falling stars, heaven rolled up like a scroll, islands and mountains being moved, Men men hiding themselves in caves and calling upon the rocks to fall on them. And this term, the day of God's vengeance and wrath, where no one can stand. When we study the Old Testament, what do these phrases actually teach us? Now, I'm going to try to be merciful just in terms of attention spans here. So I, I had to really work hard at making this short, but if you want to go deeper... Knock yourself out, because time prohibits going into minute detail on all these, what we might call cosmic disturbances, what a lot of theologians call the decreation. But suffice it to say, and I'm just going to offer a couple of examples for you to kind of go, oh, I see, that all of this language that we see in Revelation chapter 6 is used in the Old Testament to describe One nation, or sometimes, like I said, locusts or something like that, but mainly one nation judging another nation. God, this language is the language in the Old Testament that God uses to describe how he is going to raise up one nation to judge another nation. The darkening of the sun and the moon and the stars is used in Isaiah chapter 13, to describe God stirring up the Medes that they might destroy Babylon. That's the language. God is going to the Medes, I'm going to stir them up, and they're going to destroy Babylon. And there we see the sun, the moon, the stars used in, as language to describe what's going to happen to that nation at the hands of another nation by the Medes. Similar language is used in Ezekiel 32. And again, we could go there. You can, you know, you have the notes. If you don't, you can get them. It's the exact same language, sun, moon, stars, to describe the destruction of Egypt by another nation. Melting mountains and the heavens rolled up like a scroll is imagery used to describe the destruction of Edom, 
by the Assyrians, as is the day of the Lord's vengeance. That is the term used in reference to that one nation destroying the other nation. We see the language of calling mountains to fall on us in Hosea 10.8, again, in reference to one nation destroying another nation, and the use of the bow and the extinguishing of the sun and the moon is also found in Habakkuk, where it is clearly the military invasion of Judah by the Chaldeans. All right, well, I'm kind of restraining myself, and I'm going to stop there, but hopefully you get the point. None of this language that we just read in Revelation 6, when it's used in the Old Testament, none of it is used for the final judgment. None of it is used for judgment day. But it is used to describe one nation used by God, even a more evil nation, to judge another nation. Our current, and I'm going to argue, massive error held by so many Christians regarding the moral and spiritual and economic, and you name it, trajectory of history happens when we seek to interpret Scripture through the lens of a newspaper rather than through Scripture itself. They call it the analogia de fide, the analogy of faith. That you use the Bible is your primary resource to understand the Bible. And you allow the clear to help you understand the unclear. And we're not doing that at all. I mean, when I read these books, some of these books... They don't even reference these passages. I had to find a whole different series of books to find references to sun and moon and stars in the Old Testament, which is so prevalent in this passage that we just read. What we are actually reading in these accounts, and and just mark this, because I think this is just so enormous in terms of our thinking, in terms of our culture, What we are reading in these accounts is not the anticipation of the downward trajectory of human history that everybody seems to embrace. So many of our Christian friends are like going, it's getting worse and worse and worse because the Bible says it's supposed to. No, it's just the opposite. What we're reading in this account is the stemming of evil. What we're reading in this account is God, Christ, cleaning up the neighborhood for the advancement of the kingdom of God that has just been started. It's just the opposite of the popular view that is so prevalent today. I think we underestimate the kind of neighborhood that Jesus was born into. I think we need to understand what was it like when the new covenant began that would warrant such cataclysmic language. Let's take a minute here now to look at that. What does the New Testament, especially the Gospel, say about the environment into which Jesus was born and what would happen to his detractors? We read in the very beginning, right, in John, that he came into his own and his own received him not. You've heard me quote that a million times. But I think we underestimate what that actually looked like. That was not a mere shunning. It wasn't like, you know, he came to a party and everybody ignored him. 
Now, what happened at the birth of Christ? Right? What, what, what was Herod trying to do? At his very birth, the powers that be exercised all of their control and power and influence to do what? To kill him. So he hadn't even done anything yet except be born. Talk about his own received him not. I mean, that's, that's kind of a moderate statement for what was really taking place. The nation of Jerusalem, Israel, which should have been, remember they were that one light, right? They should have been the source of light and truth and redemption. That one nation, according to Jesus, was more evil than the most evil nations that we see recorded in, in the history of redemption. Jesus, he's referencing these ungodly nations, Tyre and Sidon, Sodom. What does he say? He goes, you know what, if, if Tyre, Sidon, maybe those aren't as familiar to you, but certainly Sodom is familiar to you. He goes, if they saw what you have seen, they would have repented. So it's going to be worse. He's talking about that one thin light, right, who had become so evil He is basically saying, well, he says verbatim, it's going to be worse for you on Judgment Day than for them. That's how dark it was, the nation into which Jesus was born. Little wonder, if you read Matthew chapter 23, you see the most scathing denunciation toward the clerics, toward the religious leaders of Israel. Right? It's that passage where he just goes, you know what? You are whitewashed sepulchers of dead men's bones. You make one convert, and they're twice as much a son of hell as yourself. And on and on and on. I mean, he just kind of rips in to the pastors of, of Israel. And then, at the end of that passage, this is what he declares. That on you, talking about the, that nation, that, those people, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now get this. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will become upon this generation. You get what Jesus is saying here. I mean, we got to just take this literally, naturally. We're reading this. He just talked about the Pharisees. He just rips into him, and then he goes, and this is what's going to happen to you. This is what's going to happen to what generation? This generation. It's the near demonstrative. It's not that generation. It's not some future generation. It's this generation. The generation to whom Jesus was speaking. All of the righteous blood. Abel to Zechariah. From A to Z, it's all going to fall upon you. You understand the idea, right? That the blood of Abel is crying out right, to God for vengeance. It's this idea... That the, that the saints were praying about, that they're calling out. This, this innocent shed blood is calling out for vindication. And Jesus is saying, and it's coming, and it's going to fall upon you. Now, in the, now, that's chapter 23 of Matthew. Chapter 24 of Matthew is the Olivet Discourse. And we also see that in Luke. It's in the synoptics, in Mark and Luke. And so you see Jesus describing in this discourse, in this sermon, things like we saw in Revelation chapter 6. The sun turning black, the moon turning to blood, the stars falling to the ground, and so forth. We see that in the Olivet Discourse. 
And what he does in the Olivet Discourse is he repeats not only what I just said, the moon and the stars and the sun, he repeats the timing. Matthew 24, 34, the very next chapter, using the very same time frame. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. That's about 40 years after, right? Jesus gave this sermon in about 30, so about 40 years after. A.D. 70 is when the temple would be destroyed. And I would argue that when we read in Revelation 6, you're going to have to wait a little while longer. That's the little while longer that they're talking about. This is coming to an end. Now let's go, because remember what we're talking about here. You might be going, well, Pastor Paul, it seems pretty austere, this language in Revelation chapter 6, aimed toward that nation, when we see the changing of the covenants, the changing from B.C. to A.D. But the severe language is in the Scriptures. It is in reference to the same historical event in the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus is saying, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem... He says, for these, Luke 21, 22, for these are what? The days of vengeance, that all things which are written will be fulfilled. It, it, it requires interpretive or exegetical strain to somehow take this and shoot it into thousands and thousands of years into the future. The people listening to Jesus say this, they would be like, these are the days of vengeance? When his own people cried out, let him be crucified. You're talking about the hostile environment, right? At his birth, they tried to kill him. And now his own people are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, seeking to excuse himself from the guilt, is trying to like go, wait a minute. You know, um, are you sure? Right? What'd they say? Matthew 27, 25, his blood be on us and on our children. Not exactly the type of verse you read during Easter, right? It's not, it's not the verse you put on your refrigerator, but it is in the scripture. His blood be on us and on our children. And in that same conversation, Pilate again, kind of, you know, you know the story of Pilate where he's going, washing his hands and going, look at it, I'm just trying to be a politician here. He says, shall I crucify your king? Shall I crucify your king? Remember, that's their people, right? He came into his own. And I would argue this, that it is here that we see probably the very first record in Scripture of the people of God taking the mark of the beast. When they said this, the chief priest answered, Priests, plural. We have no king but Caesar. I think that's the taking of the mark of the beast. Well, it was an anticipation of this horrible judgment that Jesus turned toward the mourning and lamenting people, right? So we're talking about this, this event that is just seems to be so severe and tragic and hostile. And they are mourning and they're lamenting. And what does Jesus say in Luke 23, verses 28 through 30? Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves, for your children. Remember they just said, right? Let their blood be on us and our children. Don't weep for me. 
Weep for yourselves, weep for your children, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, the breasts which never nursed. And then we see the familiar language. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. It's all the same event. This is all talking about the same event. The event that Jesus said is happening in, quote, this generation. It is the end of B.C. and the beginning of A.D. But more importantly, it is the end of the Old Covenant and it's the beginning of the New Covenant. And the New Covenant begins with a bang. It's an explosion. And all the world recognizes it except for us. I mean, the very date, that's why I'm talking about I mean, it's, the date is somewhat insignificant and yet the whole world kind of recognizes what year it is. And so back to the question, what happened that changed the date? Why is it the whole world views this as something different, and yet, and yet we somehow ignore it? And all of these things, and this is what I think is critical, all of these things that we have a whole number of generations of Christians thinking is going to be the ultimate climax of the fall of the human race, are, it's just the opposite. It is God cleaning up the neighborhood that surrounded the kingdom of God in order for the kingdom of God to advance. And remember the illustration I gave a few weeks ago about how the Roman Empire started out gigantic during the beginning of the New Covenant, right? North Africa, east all the way practically to Russia, to Spain, all the way to Scandinavia. And as time went on, it's on that mural in Rome. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and it's just a dot. The neighborhood was cleaned up. And that dot, which is where the church began, becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and has reached you and it has reached me. And we're way far away from Jerusalem. We're way far away from Rome. And it continues to grow. It is just the opposite of what seems to be the popular infatuation in terms of things getting worse. The house has paid off. And God has called us to work on the house. And we're kind of going, well, can he come back, please? And he can, maybe he can fix the house. Because I'm not really good at working around the house. Which, by the way, is, is kind of true. <laughs> all of these words, all of this imagery is applied to what would happen to Jerusalem within a generation of Christ when the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem sieged by Rome. But what do they do? Well, we've got to finish with this. Rather than obeying Christ, we see this happening in that first century. What do they do? How do they respond? They hide. They head for the rocks, the mountains, and they call eventually for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. I mean, we tend to just kind of gloss over that, but let's just stop there for a second. Proverbs 8.36 says that those who hate me love death. And what we have here is the group of people who rather than submit to Christ, rather than have faith in Christ, rather than trust in Christ, prefer death. It is an interesting thing that happens in the heart of fallen man. And that is, when we're in debt, we want to cure the debt by becoming more in debt. We're going to hide in the rocks. I'm going to seek the rocks for refuge. They're not really doing their job. So instead of turning to Christ, I'm going to have the rocks kill me. That is kind of the picture that we're given here, rather than obeying Christ and finding that refuge. 
Well, let me finish with this. Because in stark contrast to these cosmic disturbances, these things that can be shaken, the author of Hebrews offers a glorious alternative. And keep in mind, the author of Hebrews, he's writing to Jews who had come to faith in Christ, and they're thinking of going back to the temple, which, by the way, is going to be destroyed. And he's trying to bring them to their senses. Therefore, he writes in 12, 28, and 29, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, the final cry in this passage is the rhetorical question, and who is able to stand? And the implied answer to the rhetorical question, obviously, is nobody. But there is a means by which we can stand. And I'll finish with this, just the verse. Well, two of my favorite verses. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Notice the word stand in there, and it's the same word in the Greek. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And I pray that is true of all of us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that our hearts might be grateful, that you do not remain idle when your people are surrounded by evil. We thank you that you protect your church, that, that you hover over us, that you scrutinize our path and our lying down. And even if we were to take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the remotest part of the earth, behold, you are there. We thank you that you watch over us, and we do pray that in light of that and the knowledge of that, we would ever be faithful servants, ever calling upon your name, and ever seeking to walk faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.